It's February 17, 2022, and welcome to Leaders on the Frontier. My name is David Leeson. I'm your host, and the Frontier Center for Public Policy is about better public policy for a better tomorrow. We are an independent and nonpartisan policy think tank. Our topic today is Canada's healthcare system. Is it serving you? How do we make it patient-centered? And what indeed are the solutions? But what you asked, don't we have a great healthcare system? Well, that's the question. And sadly, despite having great people in that healthcare system, the facts do not suggest that at all. Consistently, Canada's healthcare system is ranked at the bottom of all international rankings in the OECD countries. And, and we are the second most expensive in the world. Canada is a leading example of an underperforming healthcare system. Today, I would like to introduce our guest, Dr. Brian Day. And uh, I, I want to um, introduce him by saying Brian Day is a pioneer in anthroscopic surgery and sports medicine in Canada. He was involved in developing the world's first surgical robot and the first ever satellite telemedicine broadcast between North America and China. He was the recipient of the Canadian Orthopedic Association's Edward Sampson Award for Outstanding Research. And he is a former research committee chair and past president of the Antroscopy Association of North America, the world's leading academic society in the field. He has lectured worldwide and has published over 200 articles and book chapters, and he is the past president of the Canadian Medical Association. And despite the deterioration of our healthcare system, Dr. Day is a optimistic physician who has been a clarion voice for change, and in particular, he is the founder of the Canby Surgery Clinic, which is involved in uh, court actions in British Columbia to overcourt, overturn pardon me, the ban on private health care services. A warm welcome to you, Dr. Day. Thank you, David. Um, Brian, I'm so glad that um, you could join us today. We certainly got a lot of ground to cover in this far-reaching discussion. I think it'll be fascinating. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about your background and beginning with the question, why did you decide to become a physician? Well, um, it's, it's an interesting um, quick story that my, my father initially um, was, um, was, uh, had a degree in, in science, but um, was not working in, in that field directly and, and then decided to go into pharmacy. And so he became a pharmacist and, um, and I used to help him in the pharmacy shop when I was in my early teens and the, the chem, they were called chemist shops in England. And anyway, I, um, I was headed towards being a pharmacist and, but all the doctors that came in to see my father and my father persuaded me to go to medical school. And so, so that's the route I went, and um, and that's a long time ago now. Uh, it's um, so it's been a long journey. I I came to Vanc to Vancouver in the seventies um, as a trainee in orthopedic surgery, and um, and um, stayed. And and can you tell us more about your specialization? So I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I was initially. Um, a trainee in in trauma and um, like broken bones and serious trauma i trained in switzerland after my training in vancouver i spent time working in switzerland in uh, belgium in england and in los angeles uh, including the la county so i saw a lot i was trained in trauma and then i came back and um the specialty of sports injuries um was something i got it very interested in so I've treated sports athletes from around the world, famous athletes, um, world-class athletes from Europe and South America and, and uh, as far away as Russia and Australia um, Olympians. So that's been my specialty now for many years. That's interesting. As, Brian, you know, it's fascinating as I've talked with uh, so many people over the last few years as we've gotten to know each other, um, your, your name comes up and um, 
so many uh, uh, physicians that I know say, well, uh, you're very fortunate to get to know Dr. Brian Day. He's really a legend uh, in terms of medical care that you provide, but also the kind of leadership you've given. Now, you've been president of the Canadian Medical Association as well. Yes, I, I, the Canadian Medical Association is a very old society. It's only three months um, younger than Canada. So it's uh, formed in 1867. They've only had one orthopedic surgeon as their president, and that's me. Um, and um, I went into it, um, be, I, I, I became interested in medical politics because uh, we weren't being allowed to function as surgeons in, in this system. And I know you're, you're gonna uh, question me more on that, but that was, um, that was my motive for trying to get into what, you know, the field of quotes, medical politics, and, and, and introduce some change. And um, I found it was a lot more difficult introducing change than I thought, but uh, I think I made some progress. So let's talk about um, the Canby Clinic. I know that um, from persons, friends of mine that have um, benefited from um, experience at the Canby Clinic as a patient, no less, uh, they very much appreciated the clinic. I know it's highly rated on all indexes. Why, why did you found that clinic? Um, can you tell us briefly the history of that? Yeah, so when I came to Canada uh, in, um, you know, over 40 years ago, um, the system was fine. I mean, we, there was only basically a public system. We had no wait lists. Patients got treated right away. Um, certainly, um, but, but during the mid to late 80s, it started to, de to deteriorate. We found that patients weren't getting access. We found that uh, doctors were, had their operating specialists, had their operating time rationed. So mine, for instance, was progressively cut from 22 hours a week of surgery down to five hours the minimum recommended for competence by the Canadian Orthopedic Association is 13 and a half hours. So that was almost a third of the recommended maximum and minimum time. And, and, and then equally, I was, in I was in charge of the resident, the training orthopedic surgeons in, um, in British Columbia in their academics. And I was actually chairman of the Royal College um, Test Committee for graduating orthopedic surgeons in Canada and found that we couldn't give them, we were training them, but we couldn't give them jobs. They were not being allowed to operate. And so um, by, by the time it got to the late 80s, we, early 90s, we decided we were going to do something about this. And if the government wouldn't let us take our patients to their hospitals, we would build our own hospital. And basically that's what we did. We, a lot of us had chances to go elsewhere, but we wanted to stay in Vancouver. And um, so, so and just to clarify that for kind of a lay person's perspective, you have these um, incredibly highly trained, specialized physicians mm -hmm. that really can't practice uh, because of the rationing or the availability of the operating theater. They're not available. Is that is that kind of a key? Yeah, so of sixty uh, over a one four year period in the in the early nineties, um, one five year period of sixteen trained orthopedic surgeons that we had trained at UBC alone, only five could get a job. The others um, left for the had to leave for the United States, and and so to give. You know, I have a sample of an operating room slate in, in, in actually a few months before we opened our, our surgical facility in, in, in 1996. And um, all, in, a, in a full week of 20 operating room session, day sessions, um, 13 were completely closed. And of the of the seven that were open, five of them um, closed, were only open till 3 p.m. This was all based on rationing because what was happening is, is governments were beginning to 
find that they couldn't afford to keep the promise of treating patients when they needed the treatment. And so patients were not getting access to, to healthcare. So, and so the way I, they did it was by rationing access to operating rooms, rationing access to doctors and nurses. So it seems like there's this almost kind of a bizarre scenario that maybe many people are not aware of where you have the rationing on one hand of the service provider uh, because they can't, can't get the operating theater. On the other hand, you have um, waiting lists, people who are waiting years um, many in chronic pain trying to get that service. And so there's a, there's a, a complete mismatch of resources. Well, yes. And literally um, patients were, was, uh, were suffering, not, not only suffering, dying on, on wait lists. And, 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 th and that, uh, that was something that um, was, it, it all relates to the fact that we had a system with capped funding. I mean, hospitals were given what we call a global budget to operate each year. And that budget, um, when it started to run out, the only solution was to stop, stop treating patients. And, and that's the case today, that um, one, of the, one of the biggest um, problems is that um, hospitals um, are, are not uh, capable of treating of fulfilling their promise to treat patients in an accessible period of time in a, in a reasonable access with reasonable access. And wow. that's, that's the problem. And meanwhile, today, for instance, we have 200, over 200 young orthopedic surgeons in Canada fully trained who cannot get any operating time, even though the biggest wait lists are in orthopedics. And that's just orthopedics. Wow. The same applies to other specialties. So this is uh, probably a shock to many people's ears. Um, now you're you're an insider of sorts within the system. You've, you have enormous experience and perspective, and it's been interesting as I've talked with you, um, Doctor Day, that you've made the observation in essence that our our system, and I think people would be shocked to hear this, you describe as a Soviet style system. What do you mean by that? Well, actually, I use the analogy in relation to the fact that we now have laws in, in Canada whereby um, non-residents and um, so individuals from other provinces and other countries have rights within your, res your province that you live in that are denied to you. And, and you know, the, the reference to Soviet was the fact that they in the days of the Soviet Union, there used to be shops in, 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 in Moscow, for example, where only visitors could go. You were not allowed in if you were a Moscow resident, if you were a Soviet citizen. And so that's the analogy. And, um, but it's far from, uh, you know, one of the things I do like to um, point out is this is not, um, I'm not really calling our system communist because communist countries do not have laws like ours that outlaw choice and outlaw private uh, options. Um, Sorry, um, can you repeat so, that again? Yeah, so country, there are five com communist countries now um, that uh, Cuba, China, Laos, Vietnam, um, that um, North Korea, and none of them outlaw private health insurance in the way that Canada does. Wow. So we, we have this bizarre situation is that we, we have more restrictions on freedom of choice than some of these authoritarian countries around the world have. Um, and, um, and that should be a wake up call for, for Canadians that the government has wow. taken, the government's basically taken the position that, um, if you're on a wait list and you're exceeding the maximum safe time, it's their job to decide whether you can go out and get treated. Wow. And so that puts enormous them. power in the hands of the so-called medical bureaucracy. Um, well, it's in the hands of the government. It's not in the hands yeah. of the medical bureaucracy because physicians don't have a say. It's, 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 and, and to be fair to bureaucrats, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, we all hit on bureaucrats and Canada mm -hmm. does have a big problem with an excess of bureaucrats, but 
that's the mandate the government has given them. So I blame the, the government for basically directing the bureaucrats to ration access to healthcare. Exactly. Yeah. Ultimately, it resides with the, um, the political masters who ultimately have responsibility for designing this insane system. So one of the things that I think Canadians would be shocked to learn is that within this system, you really do have to be your advocate for healthcare. You need to speak up and be active. But there's another side to the healthcare system where we call them VIPs, very important people who do get extraordinary access. And you see bits of them um, as they even come to your clinic. Uh, you see so many um, very high profile celebrities, in fact, come to your clinic because they want high quality, accessible care. But within the public system, what, did you, what do you mean by VIPs? So, um, so politicians, judges, senators um, have all been often funded by the federal government itself or the provincial government for that matter. You know, one of the, we will I know we're going to talk about it later on, but one of the um, paradoxes of our legal challenge was the, in, the group that instituted and forced the legal challenge that we undertook and our patients undertook was the BC Nurses Union who actually send us private patients. The, the defendant in the lawsuit is, is officially the Attorney General of British Columbia office. They actually send us private patients. The federal government is an into, it, it was, um, uh, was involved in, on the side of the, with the British Columbia government in, in this uh, legal challenge and they send us patients. And as anyone knows who reads the newspapers, um, politicians of all political stripes have gone and accessed healthcare independently, and um, and often in the in the United States or or elsewhere, or else they they do what happened in in Ottawa sometimes, which is you know in the I gave a talk to the Ottawa editorial board of the Ottawa Citizen. And they used to have a little box in the top right-hand corner of the registration form when you went to the hospital, which had VIP. You had to tick whether the individual was a VIP, which caught, caught, of course makes a mockery that we have equal an equal system. Wow. So just to clarify, you're saying that in some of the hospitals, there's actually a form so that as, they, as those patients come in, they're identified for having is a better service vip status well actually the, the, that became a front page story after i told the ottawa citizen and interestingly within a week the box was gone from the admission forms um, so but but that doesn't mean the process ceased um, wow. as you can imagine Gosh, this, this sounds reminiscent of uh, george orwell's book animal farm where we're all equal but some are more equal than others, perhaps. Um, that's, that's, that's shocking. We, we had an example of that very recently, and, you know, uh, and I feel badly for him, but our premier in British Columbia had a cancer. And, and what happened was a, there was a front page article in our, our provincial main newspaper, the Vancouver Sun, pointing out that, that more than half of cancer patients are waiting longer than the safe time that the government has determined is safe. In the same issue of the Vancouver Sun was an op-ed by the premier praising how quickly his cancer and how effectively his own cancer was diagnosed and treated. And so, um, you know, and I'm, I, I, I wish the best for the premier, but it's not equal treatment by any means. When you're a premier, you get better access. And Wow. So there's a kind of an overarching arching narrative or story about our healthcare system. And uh, you're, of course, very familiar with this book that Frontiers released. It's by senior fellow uh, Susan D. Martinek, a senior fellow in healthcare. And it's referred to as uh, Patients at Risk, Exposing Canada's Healthcare Crisis. And it's just released now. It's available on Amazon. And I want to read you just briefly um, the dedication. I think it's a very powerful one written by 
uh, Susan Martinuk. It says, this book is dedicated to the millions of Canadians who have been denied timely medical care by our supposedly universal, equally accessible, and free healthcare system. Many of these people believe that Canada had the best healthcare in the world and faithfully supported it each year through their taxes, out-of-pocket payments, and charitable donations. They had no idea or no reason to doubt that it would be there to help them when they needed medical care. But when that time came, there was no healing to be found. Instead, they found themselves at the mercy of an archaic entity that is beholden more to ideology than providing care to patients. And as a result, it can legally withhold medically necessary treatment for years. And the only guarantee of care is that it offers an access, pardon me, to a wait list. Is that, a, is that your experience, Dr. Day? Yes. I mean, the data is very clear, as you alluded to in your introduction, that Canada's health system is very expensive. And we're now up to 12.7% of GDP. And one of the top few in the world, I mean, um, second only to, um, to, to, to countries like the United States, uh, which is, is out on, it, on a limb on its own, and it's not the model we want for Canada. But I think one of the things the Commonwealth Fund, which is, which is a, fa a foundation whose, whose mandate is to advocate and promote um, better access for healthcare for low-income and, and underprivileged groups, um, they ranked um, 10, you know, of the 10 universal systems that they have ranked around the world in develop, developed countries with universal healthcare, Canada came in last, 10th out of 10. And despite the fact that we're one of the most, one of the most expensive in the world, despite the fact that we, we have this myth that, that, that is widely held that we have a wonderful system, they have no, you know, they, they have no uh, political axe to grind. They ranked us last. And interestingly, at the bottom in, in criteria such as equity, which is, means, so what, what actually Stats Canada um, shows, and this is Canadian Institute for Health Information, Stats Canada, these groups, that in Canada, the worst health access and the worst health outcomes are in lower socioeconomic groups, the absolute opposite of what the intent was. So oh. um, I think it's very important to point out that I am not, I, wasn't, I was never an advocate for private privatization of a health system. I just believe that, um, that, that the monopoly that we have, which is unique in the world, and opposing witnesses in our legal challenge hmm. pointed out that no country in the world outlaws uh, an option from and forces you into a state-run monopoly in healthcare. No other wow. country, and so that that is um, that that sets Canada apart. That we're the only country on earth that says you have to go to what the you have to wait until the government gives you healthcare. Um, and, and, and so what happens is um, the, the wealthy, by the way, the wealthy have never suffered under any, in, in, and this applies throughout the world, the wealthy don't suffer and the wealth, wealthy Canadians don't suffer. They just go down to the United States. So our, our fight, if you like, 70% of Canadians have what we call extended health insurance, which covers dentistry and pharmacy, you know, pharmaceuticals, drugs, uh, physiotherapy, things that should be covered under and are covered under most other countries' universal health system. But we think that type of insurance should be, uh, it should be legal to expand it to cover what the government is not offering in, in its um, current system, which is timely access to, to care for patients. So this is very intriguing to me because the facts are that our system is so poorly rated and yet so much of the narrative that we're talking about today based on those facts and you know the stories of so many um, Canadians that have suffered under the healthcare system 
the, the larger narrative, it would, it would be a shock to Canadians that their system is ranked so low. And I'm, I'm fascinated the parties who want this backwards system to kind of continue um, have been very effective at limiting the debate, uh, blocking any discussion, even vilifying people such as Dr. Brian Day. And I know you can tell all kinds of stories about that. Um, I mean, they even declare people as un-Canadian to dare question about how do we fundamentally improve this system. Um, it's, it's utterly absurd. So why is this? What's going on that would limit this kind of discussion to that degree? So the, the reason it's been able to, to succeed is that mil, you know at any one time, only a, couple, a million or two Canadians are waiting for healthcare. That sounds funny to say only a million or two. But that's still, um, you know, relative to the population, um, not that many. It's it's a few percent, in other words, and um, or several percent, and and that means until until you need healthcare, or your loved one needs healthcare, the the theory of accessible, free healthcare sounds good. But what happens is people get a wake-up call when they need it because it's not there. And um, and you know one of the one of the um, points I make is that 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 there's no reason why you can't have a little bit of competition. I mean, countries like Sweden, Denmark, England, New Zealand. Um, Holland, these are not right-wing radical countries. They all allow um, an option of private insurance. And what that does, it's a yardstick by which the government system can be measured and monitored and compared. Whereas governments are very, uh, anyone with a monopoly um, is very happy because they don't have anyone um, exposing their inefficiencies mm -hmm. and I think that's okay. that's that's part of the reason why this myth can carry on but once it affects you or your loved ones if you have a loved one who can can has cancer or can walk a court you know take less than half a block in pain and they're in pain then you realize wow this isn't right that they're told they have to wait months or years for, for access to healthcare, and it isn't right, and it doesn't happen in any other developed country. So there, there, a lot of Canadians, because they don't ironically use the system, are comforted by the notion, the illusion that it is a great system, until tragically they have to use it. Yes, I mean it's like saying it's like um, you know you could offer free automobile insurance, and then as long as you don't have a crash. It's fine, but then when you have an accident, find out that oh, the insurance will fix your car, but it's going to take a year. And that's not what yeah. people expect. It's it's crazy. So, if we look to the world of solutions, then um, certainly Frontier has um, worked with you extensively. Uh, we we had uh, some of our personnel give uh, witness such your trial based on you know Frontier's work on healthcare performance indexes, working with our partner in Sweden on that. Um, and some of the principles are very important here. Um, and I know that Frontiers kind of come out and said, well, we need to replace, as you said, Dr. Brian Day, um, we need to replace the present global budgeting system, say for hospitals. I, right. As a former member of hospital boards, I, I saw that well, where we didn't know what it cost to do, say, a hip replacement surgery. But we did know the global budget of, say, $40 million that we got from the province every year. So you'd, re you'd replace that. You'd separate the purchase and provision of services to introduce, as you say, competitive pressures. So what are the models that you look to? Where are the well, solutions? I, you know, I think Canada has potentially an advantage now in that it can, it can look at the world experiences and select. It can choose the best from each that they they can that that will work in in practical terms but as you point out under the system where a hospital is given its budget up front every year it means 
that every patient that goes to the hospital is using up the hospital's revenue and money. In every other OECD country, that is not the case. That, that when in England, for example, whose NHS system was, what, and together with New Zealand, those two were, were something that we modeled our system on. When, when, you go to, when a public patient goes to a public hospital, the public hospital gets revenue from the government. So those hospitals want patients. In Canada, the hospitals look upon patients as a cost item and are you, their patients are using up the hospital's revenue. So as a, as a chief financial officer of a hospital, if they're going close to the under budget, the first thing they do is cut back on treating patients. In, in those other countries, in other OECD countries, the exact opposite. If you're, lo if you're low, on revenue, low on money or budget, you want to treat more patients. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a bizarre system of funding that is, and, and Canada is the only country in the developed world that uses this funding system as its primary uh, uh, almost exclusively. So you're saying that we should really fund based on quality results not in some well i think that's one thing schemes. not necessarily quality but at least because that that's another step that needs to happen we need to to have proper audits on physicians hospitals you know performances outcomes because the the lower performing um, hospitals need to be identified and once they're identified they will perform better or else they'll be closed but but i think that that we need to make patients a value item when they go to a hospital not a cost item exactly and in the meantime this kind of terrible design this backward system that's called canada's healthcare system um really is hurting a lot of people and i'm, I'm sure you have untold i know you have untold stories of how this is really hurting people is there one that really illustrates that well well, I think, you know, um, we'll maybe talk about it a little bit more, but that in our trial, we found that in one single health region, Fraser Health, which is just one region in British Columbia, in one year, 308 patients died on the wait list without being treated. And, Sorry, can you repeat know, that again? In one year, 308 patients in a single health region died on the public wait list without even being treated. And we know that a large percentage of those patients are, have exceeded the maximum time they should be waiting. And, and, you know, it was the Supreme Court of Canada in 2005. And this is every, every, not, not a right-wing court by any means. Um, who came out and said that Canadians are suffering and dying on wait lists. That, that was their, one of the statements from the Chief Justice when, uh, when the Quebec um, Chaoli decision came down. Well, it, it, it's so sad to hear that. So people are not just suffering, they are dying. Uh, and, and that's pre-COVID. That was yeah. pre-COVID. Um, well, the COVID factor is, is um, you know, COVID has probably, according to... Um, Mohit Bandari is a professor at McMaster, has probably in two, 2020 he came out with a modeling study that COVID would increase wait times between four and seven times. A year later, he revisited it, or their group revisited it, and said they think that's even that's um, uh, an understatement. No, it, the, the, the impacts of COVID 19 right across our society and in particular on our healthcare system are are really profound, aren't they? Um, will that be potentially a breaking point for our system? I, 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 we look at the, the demographics of Canadian society are well-known, an aging population. We have the second most expensive healthcare system in the world. We know that inflation is well underway and accelerating. We see our deficits and uh, debts. And obviously I don't want to be... Um, too gloomy, but these are this is a, a train wreck. And then, meanwhile, no one is talking or wanting to talk at the political level about the 
desperate need to reform our healthcare system. What what's going to break this? Well, I think it was broken pre-COVID. So COVID is just um, that's right. Really, yes. <laughs> um, so so I think that's why, as I said, we. we Politicians seem to be afraid of this. You know, some people call it the third rail, the electric rail of of, um, of political uh, politics. But um, but I think that unfortunately, it's going to have to be the courts that that sort this out. And um, and we know that um, we know that that patients' human rights are being are being compromised here, that you cannot do, uh, our position is to basically a trial is you cannot promise healthcare in a timely manner, then fail to deliver it, and then outlaw any choice or option for the patient. You know, one of the paradoxes of our law, law, legal system, is the exempted groups that you were talking about earlier include um, politicians because they're if they're federal employees and and they or or if they're from other provinces and and uh, prisoners you know one of the bizarre things. So is can you that clarify prisoners... that how are how are those politicians and federal employees exempted? So federal employees are covered um, by. Um, federal funds and they are able to access. So we're talking about judges and um, poli federal politicians. They, you know, it's in the, these are in the public domain, some of these stories of how uh, Jean Chrétien went in and, you know, a, an armed forces jet to, to the States to get private healthcare. Mm -hmm. That's not, that's not a, a confidential thing, but we happen to know multiple politicians have done likewise, um, and or at least even within Canada, or that's if they can't jump the queue as a VIP. So, um, so, but we know we know that um, there are ways and means that people of influence jump the queue. But the point that included in those federal exempted groups, I mean, the exempted groups include workers' compensation patients, um, Canadian Armed Forces. Um, RCMP, um, but also um, federal judges and senators and MPs who oh, are, and, and anyone out of province. Right. So it's not an equal, it's not a question of equality of access. There is no equality of access in Canada. Um, and, and, and this is in contrast to say someone like myself who enters the healthcare system through the provincially funded system that is highly rationed and um, most likely you'll end up on a waiting list. Yes, and, 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 and it's, it's, it's a, a, a system that I think Canadians need to understand is unique in the world. It's unique. Yeah. No other country has such a system. So we our. truly are a policy outlier when it comes to healthcare. Yeah, unique on, on the planet. And, okay. So can you just uh, clarify more about the lawsuit that's happening now? Um, yes. Why is that happening? What are the, what do you ex hope to get out of this? And um, we're, we're waiting for a decision now um, at one level. Yes, we had a decision at the lower court and that was a decision that, um, that didn't shock us because we sensed from day one, this was a, a trial that went into its fourth year um, we had um, a judge, Justice John Steves, who had a great difficulty in understanding some of the concepts. He mm. um, he had difficulty with lots of issues. And on the on, on the early day, first day or so of the trial, he announced um, he wanted to disclose that he'd had surgery at our clinic, privately in our private clinic, which he had not. Um, so he didn't, he, you know, we thought there's something strange, but it was very obvious to us from day one that this, that he had a, an ideological opposition to, even though he'd been treated at a private clinic himself, it wasn't ours. His was government funded, as we alluded to earlier, the government is exempt from these rules. Um, he, um, 
but he made many, many errors. And he came out um, after a four a trial that went into its fourth year um, with an 880 page decision against us. Um, but some of the some of his conclusions were completely um, um, strange. I mean, he he made he made just to a, I think listeners and laypersons can understand this how ridiculous this statement was that if you wait um, longer than six months for surgery, every month you wait beyond that six months, you get eight percent better. Um, this was a bizarre ruling. He ruled um, uh, the evidence, which he didn't understand, was that you get eight percent worse. But that's what he would. He came out with a with with a statement that our nurses at our private clinic bill the provincial medical plan, the government plan, which he got from nowhere. I mean, that, that was a bizarre statement, and we didn't understand it. And the sad thing is, this has now gone to the Court of Appeal. It went to the court, BC Court of Appeal last um, June. And basically, at this Court of Appeal, they mostly look, or the, the, the most concerned to them are legal errors. And we believe he made many legal errors, which are more. So we're hopeful. But the trouble is, the appeal court in the provincial appeal court, like the BC appeal court, um, is constrained by the findings of fact of the trial judge because they don't hear the evidence. And he made many errors in findings of fact. He made many legal errors and errors. So we are confident that eventually this decision will be overturned because essentially what we were saying is this has already been to the Supreme Court in, in, of Canada in the Chowley decision and we were basically saying, should, should citizens outside of Quebec have the same rights, same human rights for that um, the Supreme Court of Canada granted to citizens of Quebec? And if not, then um, we truly do have a two-tier system in, in Canada. And, and can and, you remind us, the decision in Quebec allowed, well, the Supreme Court allowed people to access private clinics in Quebec. Private insurance, um, uh, yes. And so, so one of the, the other things which we didn't talk about, but as a result of that decision also in Quebec, they have introduced what are called care guarantees, which is another thing that, that we have advocated for, which is that if you are waiting beyond a certain timeline that the the evidence shows there's potential risk of harm, then the government should be required to guarantee your, your treatment. And that means even if they have to send you to another province, a private clinic, or even to the United States, they should have a guaranteed maximum that they can keep you waiting. So what, what I, I think I've been astounded at how vociferous the provincial government in this case in British Columbia and in many respects the federal government have worked together as a team to pursue this lawsuit and do we have any idea what kind of money they're spending this has been going on now for years it's incredible the commitment and courage um, that people have had to support you in this lawsuit. It's, it's quite an extraordinary story. Well, do, do you have any sense of what kind of money has been spent on the other side? We, 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 we actually went and tried to get a freedom of information request to get that data because the government has spent, we, we think maybe 70 million. We, we have no idea, but we went under freedom of information request to get that information because we felt the taxpayers of the province of, of the country should know, should be allowed to know how much their government is spending fighting against uh, British Columbians and, and actually others having, having access to the same rights under the, under the charter that the, that the Supreme Court gave to Quebecers. And we, we were denied that um, that figure, but that's our, that's our, um, that's what we estimate it is. And um, we'd be pleased if they 
opened the books and told us because we know they were spending forty to fifty thousand dollars on experts, um, half of whom they didn't use um, even because presume. I mean, one of the great paradoxes of the lawsuit was that many, many of the opposing expert witnesses, when when they were on the stand, supported our our arguments. I mean, what, what it was a government expert who first who um, who asserted that Canada is the only country in the world that offers um, that that outlaws private um, access to private care in, 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 in terms of insurance. It was a government expert who came right out and said um, these patients are suffering in Canada. A government expert came out and said you are purposefully um, not training enough doctors and nurses and healthcare workers because you've decided that's a way to save. I mean, this is, these are from government experts, and it was a government. It was government representatives who said um, we need more more. We, we, we depend on the private clinics um, for contracting out because they do contract out treatments to private clinics. Um, but that, um, so we're very hopeful as it goes to the higher levels of court. And in Quebec, um, the Quebec decision was, um, was not success. The Quebec case was lost at the uh, lower courts in Quebec also. So we're not overly disheartened, but we're hopeful of a um, positive decision at the appeal court when it comes down, but we don't, we know they're constrained and we're more hopeful still of a decision later on. But, but as I say, this brings up the question, you need, what is the point of having a charter of rights and freedoms in Canada when you are faced with a government that uses tens of millions of dollars to fight you and you don't have those resources. It really so is bizarre. It's almost, it's almost a waste of time having a charter of rights yeah. and freedoms. Well, I, I think that's a very good point, Brian, because in, in many respects, this whole um, tragic saga is almost reflective of kind of a patronizing view of government that assumes that they have a right to ration this type of service, but most significantly, constrain your freedom of choice and decision that affects you as a person and your body. Right. I mean, it's like, um, you know, one of the, one of the points, um, it's interesting. Some of the other controversial, if you like, um, Supreme court constitutional decisions have been, um, have been argued on the same kind of basis that we're arguing this. And one of the points, one of the um, lines I have used to describe what we're fighting for is that in the assisted dying case that went to the Supreme Court of Canada, some people call the assisted suicide for patients with terminal illnesses, um, they, 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 um, the government, um, the law was that they, they were allowed, you, an individual is allowed to access assisted dying mm -hmm. so one of the points i've made is that that we, we the supreme court of canada has ruled that patients who are dying have a right to die in, without pain and suffering our case is about arguing that patients should have a right to live without pain and suffering and exactly. and i think that that's something that we have to emphasize in, in in, in terms of a parallel with that decision. Indeed. Now, I do have a question, and that is, uh, Dr. Brian Day, are you familiar with the um, work of Sir Roger Douglas in New Zealand so many years ago to allow for healthcare spending accounts? Is that a possible solution? I think it would be a good solution. It's why it's, it's one of the base, basic um, methods used in Singapore, which is, has been ranked one of the top, if not the top, health system in the world. They spend about half of what Canada does and have no wait lists. Um, but, uh, and, and, and Sir Roger Douglas, yes. Um, there's another New Zealand, New Zealand um, a late, former labor minister in New Zealand called Aubrey Begg, who, who basically pointed out that, that arguing for choice and, and, and an option 
that that um, that um, New Zealand um, the, the the being able to offer a, a, an option to the government monopoly is not a right wing issue. It's 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 what's valid in a free and democratic society. Yeah. Well, and I think the way you characterize it, I think is very insightful. It's a human rights issue um, yes. on so many levels. And I think that the question I'd have to just clarify that the question that, that's on the chats now, uh, people are welcome to, to um, pose their questions to Dr. Brian Day, is how would a healthcare spending account work? How Can you explain that to, to everyone? Well, it's, yes, I mean, people, it, it is weight uh, income related and and you have to, you have these medical savings accounts where you put money into them and then you use them, you use that money to access healthcare, but there are, you have to have allowances in there for low income groups. And so one of the points that's very important in this whole topic is what happens if a low income person doesn't have the funds, cannot afford a savings account, and, and can't afford private health insurance? Well, the answer is very simple. The government pays the, pays private, the private um, insurance. So mm. in Switzerland, for example, where the system is mostly, and in Holland, the system is mostly based on private insurance. The government isn't in the, is the government will pay the premiums for people who are in low income groups, just as in Canada now, in a, a lot of welfare recipients receive um, the drugs and the physiotherapy and the dentistry funded because they can't afford it. So, okay. so there's nothing to stop a government paying, paying the fees, the insurance for low income groups. Um, it's just that those the reality is that that people who earn more um, can should should be required to pay some um, premiums towards their health insurance. This is the it's the exact opposite of what the government's trying to portray this as is that a priv it's a privilege for the wealthy. No, the the wealthy should be required to pay more, and we should give um, free health care, but in a timely manner to low income groups. And I, I find that an interesting policy principle in the sense that you're creating an incentive then for people to also take ownership for their health. We know yes. that our healthcare system isn't just simply the public monopoly. It's um, more profound things like preventative medicine. Like I try to go to a gym. I, I um, try to eat well. Um, I need to do a better job at that. But And, and it's those kinds of, of ownership for one's health that is so critical here. And how do we design a system like those other countries that would actually create those explicit um, incentives? I think it's important to point out too, you know, that countries like New Zealand, where you're talking about Sir Roger Douglas and England and, and Germany and France and Belgium, these countries, unlike Canada, also cover prescription drugs, physiotherapy, ambulances, dentistry. Wow. These are not covered in Canada for some bizarre reason. It, it makes no sense that we ensure the cost of diagnosing pneumonia in the public system, but don't pay for its treatment. It makes no sense. Well, so they actually have, um, and we can certainly go through the details of, of these ways of measuring performance uh, through many indexes, but ironically, you have systems that are per capita spending less money they have better results, better performance, and they're covering even a broader array of services than they are in Canada. This is quite remarkable. I think, you know, one of the things we, we touched on recently, but it's, it's something that I think we need to emphasize is, is that a study was done comparing the bureaucracy in public health care in Canada and Germany. And one of the facts that came out was that for every public health bureaucrat that Germany has, Canada has 11. Wow. And, and that shouldn't surprise us. You know, we have, we have 14 ministries of health. 
Each has a minister and a deputy minister and associate deputies, so on down the line. Um, 14 ministries. A country like France with double the population has one. Guess where the money goes in our system? It's going to this overbloated bureaucracy and the government comes out with false data, which they're well known for, we see it with COVID, in which they say we only spend a few percent on healthcare as administrative costs. They're absolutely false, their statement, because we at the CMA were presented with a, a study on administrative costs in Canadian health Medicare compared to Medicare in the United States. And it was seven to 8% of total costs in the United States, 16 to 18% on administrative costs in Canada. It's, it's a, the, the figures that the government gives us are false. And the part of the reasons they do not include any, any nurse or doctor who is an administrator is counted as in, the, in their funding system is counted as, a, as medical, not administrative. They don't count capital costs and buildings and equipment replacements. So we're getting fudge data from the government on administrative costs. And those, those figures of 11 to one public health bureaucrats should, should, should make the public cringe. Well, it's really quite an incredible story. Uh... Dr. Day. I do have one final question as we uh, look to wrap things up. And that would be, what should we as Canadians do about this? How can we improve and even um, heighten the level of awareness and discussion and the need to move and change our system for the better? What would you, what would your advice be? Well, I, you know, I think, I think, I think the public has been pretty well kept out of decision-making here. We know from polls that 80% of the public, between 76 and 80% of the public want change. Um, in Chowley, the majority of the public in, in, in nationally and in Quebec supported the Chowley decision. Um, and, uh, and, and so it's, it's, it's a question that the government hasn't done what the public want on healthcare because most, most people understand that, that that change has to happen. At least once you get to the health, once you are in need of healthcare, you realize that it's not, it's not there for you. And so I think actually we're in the hands of the courts right now. And I think that's, this is going to have to play out in the, um, at the Supreme Court of Canada, eventually, and probably a year or so from now. And hopefully they will emancipate the um, patients um, who've been, you know, patients are, are literally constrained by government, authoritarian government laws in Canada. Well, we certainly wish you all the best, Dr. Brian Day, and we certainly um, invite everyone to uh, speak up appropriately with their elected representatives, otherwise no one will hear them. But um, Brian, you have been a friend and a friend of Frontier, and uh, indeed, you're one of our nation's leading voices for a healthcare system that is indeed patient-centered. And so bravo on you for uh, leading, helping to lead and being a courageous voice in your leadership. Thanks, David. So thank you everyone for joining us uh, here on the Frontier. I encourage you to keep involved with Frontier. We welcome your feedback and comments. Um, be sure to join um, our next policy on the frontier on February 24th next week, uh, where we will welcome the Honorable Dan Mateague. He is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Uh, Dan is uh, will be joining us to discuss Canada's energy policy and its full move away from affordable energy to expensive energy. How did this happen? And what does this mean for you and our entire nation? I also want to note that on March the 24th, uh, we will have, we're delighted to have Frontier Senior Fellow Susan Martinuk, who will be talking about the book that we just referenced earlier, Patients at Risk, Exposing Canada's Healthcare Crisis. So please join us and be sure to invite others. Thank you to all of you who donate to make Frontier possible. We do not receive any government funding, so your support is much appreciated. 
Frontier is nonpartisan, and we do not, again, accept any government funding. And we are very grateful for all your donations. So that's it for today. And remember, without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, and nor are we a free nation. So keep asking good questions, and do not be afraid. And on behalf of all of us at Frontier, my name is David Lees, and thank you for joining us.